Hope everyone's enjoying this beautiful day so far. Last week, uh, Brother Larry finished up in John chapter 4. And so I will be picking up with uh, John chapter 5. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. And let's begin reading. We'll read verse 1 through 16 to start with. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise up, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. All right. Now, beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, study put into this um, by, you know... Uh, I guess those who write commentaries the um, and teachers and preachers, that sort of thing, uh, they've put a lot of effort in into determining exactly what feast this was that is uh, represented here in verse 1. All, all it says is a feast of the Jews. A large, a large body of commentaries think it was the Feast of Purim 
others the Feast of Trumpets, and still others the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, most, however, think it uh, was the Feast of Passover uh, for the following reasons. Uh, number one, the events described in chapter four occurred in late autumn or, or even in winter. Matters described in chapter six, verses one through four, which we'll get into after this chapter, uh, these matters were shortly before a Passover. And if this feast was not that of the Passover, then there were but two such feasts involved in Jesus' uh, ministry, which was then only a little more than two years in length, uh, and not three. If this were the Passover, then John 6, 1 through 4, describes a third uh, describes a third and uh, that would lead to an additional year of Jesus' ministry, bringing it to three total years. The Passover, which is an annual feast of the Jews, marks out the period of our Lord's ministry. We, meaning, you know, uh, he's referring to himself and, and other scholars, um, he said they believed there were four Passovers that occurred during Christ's ministry. You had the, uh, the one when he cleansed the temple in John 2.13, the Passover, which is simply called the feast in uh, verse 1 that we just read, the Passover associated with the miracle uh, in John 6, 1 through 4, and then the Passover uh, while the Lord was in the tomb John 13, 1 through 19, 31. So we also believe there were a little more than three years involved in his ministry and not two. So is that pretty much everyone's consensus that Christ's ministry on while he was on this earth lasted three years? Okay. Um, the great feasts of the Jews were all held in Jerusalem and all males were required to be there. So therefore, Jesus, uh, who lived and died under the old law, he was there just like every other male Jew was required to do. All right, verses 2 and 3. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, and had five porches or porticos in which these lay a multitude of them that were sick, blind, lame, or paralyzed. Uh, the Gospel of John was written long after the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, yet the writer, or John, refers to this pool, um, which is called Bethesda, in the present tense. He refers to it in the present tense because it still remained even after the destruction of the temple, destruction of uh, Jerusalem. The, the pool here at Bethesda uh, was still intact and still remained. Uh, both Eusebius, who I spoke of before, and uh, Jerome mentioned that it existed in their day. 
So it bore the name Bethesda, which signified house of mercy. That's, that's what the word Bethesda means, house of mercy. And about it there were five porches uh, that allowed for those who were sick and crippled to go and kind of lay under and rest under and wait to go into the healing waters of the pool. It was located near the Sheep Gate, one of the entrances to the city, not far from the temple area. And uh, all those, like I mentioned before, those who were sick and crippled, uh, all those gathered there, and they were obviously beyond uh, the, the help or cure of a physician during those days. So, you know, they'd pretty much given up all hope of being cured, and this was somewhat their last chance to perhaps try to uh, to get well was to go into these uh, healing waters, if you will. Um, it's interesting to note that a portion of verse 3 and all of verse 4 of the King James translation is omitted from the American Standard Version. Does anybody have the American Standard that they're using right now? Um, it is omitted because of insufficient manuscript evidence, uh, so they say, though it does appear in the margin and reads as the following. Uh, Waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole with whatever... <clears throat> whatsoever disease he was holding. So these words omitted from the text are thought to have been added to the margin following the close of the uh, apostolic age uh, to explain the healing believed by many to have occurred there as a result of these, what they call these magical waters. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, the crippled and the ill... Uh, as mentioned early, they had exhausted all other means of being cured or being healed, and uh, this was their last resort or their last hope. And uh, many of them were gathered there daily there at Bethesda. Verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. So here we have a gentleman who had been had some type of sickness, illness, uh, infirmity uh, for, what, 30, 38 years. That's a long time to be sick. Uh, it's hard for me to go two days, you know, being sick, uh, much less 38 years. So... Anybody who has been sick for an extended period of time, you know how um, not only does it affect you uh, physically, but it, it affects you mentally. I mean, it, it gets you down, uh, depressed, and just, you know, feeling low. So there's a lot to that uh, when it says he, he was sick for 38 years. And it doesn't exactly say 
what his affliction was, uh, but drawing from the text, uh, it was probably something, you know, that had crippled him where he was not able to walk, uh, possibly not even able, you know, maybe walk upright or, you know, move around easily. He wasn't necessarily just completely paralyzed. He could have been, we don't know. But uh, whatever his affirmity was, uh, it did not allow him to move around easily or move around at all. Uh, the period of his affliction, 38 years, is mentioned to show that his was a truly was truly a helpless case. Um, there was no no means of relief for him, and uh, there could not have possibly been any deception in the deliverance which was soon to be his. So. Um, I guess you could say uh, this particular person, this man was chosen because of the severity and the duration of his uh, affirmity. You know, uh, this way nobody could come up and say, you know, you faked it all. You know, it was fake. Um, You just did it to, you know, for show, so to speak, to get everybody to believe that you committed or um, uh, served up this this great miracle of healing this man. So, you know, he'd been, you know, 38 years there were people who knew him, obviously, or who had seen him with this affliction and obviously knew that it was uh, legitimate. Uh, so it made the miracle even more... Um, I guess you could say believable. Oh, good point. Absolutely. Before Christ was even born, he was afflicted. So, good point. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said to him, Wouldest thou be made whole? Uh, The word new, K-N-E-W, translates a Greek word which means instant or immediate perception or in a flash so uh, when Jesus walked up or you know came upon this man it came to him through through God he instantly knew this man and his complete history before he even said anything to him so that's kind of you know another miracle or power if you will you know, it's just like, you know, if you walk past someone, say in Walmart, and bam, it just come to you in a flash, everything about a certain person from the time they were born, you know, that type thing. So can you imagine? So that's what we're talking about here. So uh, the full history of this man uh, came to the mind of Christ, um, In this case, as in that of Nathaniel and the Samaritan woman, the whole of the man's life was immediately before Jesus. Jesus then asked the man if if he wished to be healed, to awaken in the man a certain expectation, if you will, 
without which there could have been no faith. So he's trying to, uh, you know, I don't know how to explain it here, but draw the man in to perhaps have some faith that Jesus, um, I guess, that Jesus could do what he was, you know, telling this man, so to speak, what he could and what he would do for him. So, um, and of course, the man, he desired to be made whole. Uh, Jesus would not have built up this anticipation, you know, in other words, got him excited or whatever, uh, if, if he had not intended to act or to perform this miracle. Uh, the afflicted man, his attention had to be obtained and his heart stirred. He had to, he had to have that excitement he had to have that belief and he had to have that faith uh, in order to benefit from the marvelous cure, cure uh, which was about to take effect. Verse 7, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So what we have... Uh, have here in this situation is the pool there at Bethesda, Bethesda and you know I don't have any you know dimensions I don't know how big the pool was how deep the pool was but obviously there were uh, steps leading down into this pool I kind of I don't know picture it as a round pool with steps completely around the circumference that went down into it I don't know but there had to have been some some steps going into it, and you know, for people to come in and as well as go out. Um, but this water that they keep speaking of here in the scripture uh, may indeed have some have had some therapeutic or medicinal uh, properties to it, though not miraculous. You know, there was nothing miraculous about the water. Just like the water up here that we baptize in, there's nothing miraculous about it. There was nothing miraculous about the water in the, the Jordan River. It's just water. It takes faith, you know, to make it do what it's supposed to do. So uh, everyone's aware that there's, you know, Hot springs, mineral springs, mineral waters, uh, warm baths. Uh, and they have uh, long been known to produce relief and sometimes healing for various uh, illnesses. Uh, we've all heard of Hot Springs, Arkansas. I used to work in uh, Hot Springs, North Carolina. There in the, in the mountains there, there was, obviously it was named Hot Springs, so there was... Uh, some warm, minimal water uh, that people would come and, and, I guess, soak in or sit and bathe. And, uh, you know, a very popular spot. It was actually just right off the Appalachian Trail. The town, uh, Hot Springs itself, um, the Appalachian Trail goes into the valley. Uh, you cross the French Broad River, uh, and the sidewalk in the town, I mean, this is a 
teeny tiny town. Just, I mean, you know, there was it was small, but the sidewalk through the city was the actual Appalachian Trail. So you come down after hiking, however many days or miles, into this little town, and you come in, walk the trail, the sidewalk. You can pick up supplies, whatever you need, and then go on out of town on the AT and continue on your journey. So it's a pretty neat town. Uh, but we had the, like I said, the hot springs that a lot of the hikers would come in and I guess soak and rest some sore muscles, whatever. And we've all, well, speaking of minerals, uh, I grew up, and probably most of you did, you know, taking baths with Epsom salt. Does anybody, everybody know what I'm talking about? Especially if you're sore, it helps, you know, it helps take away the soreness. So there's some, you know, and perhaps, you know, it had something like this in that water. Um, and not only that, but warm water helps to relax muscles. Uh, so, you know, that's where they're getting their idea that this, this water was, you know, miraculous. So, and then when it's troubled, that simply means it's agitated, it's bubbling, like a jacuzzi, a hot tub. You know, there's a lot of therapeutic um, benefits from hot tubs and jacuzzis, uh, just relaxing and that type thing. And, and I don't know this, but, and, and it doesn't say if it's warm, hot, you know, whatever, but I just kind of picture... And I, I don't understand that the agitation, the troubled waters came and went. So it wasn't just constantly stirring. They would come and then they would go. And obviously there was no uh, definite timeline, so to speak. You know, like at 9 a.m. they always come on. Like you turn it on with the switch and then at 3 that afternoon, they turn the switch and go off. I don't know. I picture it as something like, you know, a natural geyser where, you know, you had some geologic features underneath there that kept it warm. And like, like Old Faithful or geysers at certain times, they'd, they'd get that burst of energy and start bubbling. And so that's what they're referring to when, you, when the word troubled. Uh, it's just an agitation and a moving of the water. So, um, and, it, and he, he states right here that it appears that the waters in this place did flow irregularly. So there was no set rhyme or reason, and that's why people would, uh, you had all these porches. Since they didn't know when it would start, they had to kind of get there and wait, you know. <coughs> Uh, so you had, they provided areas for the sick to come and, and get as comfortable as they could and just wait for the water. Okay, <clears throat> uh, this man who had no friends and he was alone uh, and helpless to act on his own behalf was unable to get into the water in these brief intervals when the waters were agitated and therefore his affliction remained. Or so he, you know, he obviously thought that uh, the water would help him. Uh, the words put me into the pool um, 
if you look up there in verse 7 where it says, put me into the pool, uh, or literally, when translated, means to throw me into the pool, indicating the view that only by quick and sudden dipping was deliverance made possible. Others with friends to assist them or those with some degree of mobility always went ahead of him, thus making it impossible for him to claim the blessing of the troubled water. So uh, we got to talk about the dimensions of this pool a while ago. So perhaps maybe it was a small pool, you know, or either there was so many people, you know, that gathered there to go into the healing waters that there was just not room for him. So... He had tried, you know, he wanted to go in, but he would, you know, and that's, you know, I don't know why no one helped him, you know, we don't know the background. Obviously, no one ever took the time or, or anything to help him, but they didn't. So, verses 8 and 9, Jesus saith unto him, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk, and straightway the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. So the man, uh, so Jesus performed his, what is this, his third miracle, Larry? The second one was there at the end of verse 5. So this would have been his third miracle where he healed this lame man who was unable to walk. Uh, He just spoke to him, said, stand up, get your bed, uh, and walk. And Obviously, when, when the word here, bed, is not a bed as what we have today. It was a pallet, uh, something that could be carried, um, you know, like a, maybe a blanket. I don't know what all a pallet would have consisted of uh, in those days. I would assume just something like a rug, maybe, or a blanket or something like that for him to lay on uh, and probably stay warm. Uh, you know, it... Hearing that word pallet made me think back to when I was uh, a little boy and mom would tell us to go lay on the pallet to take her nap or whatever, you know. So that's where that word comes from. <clears throat> there is not the slightest evidence uh, to support that this man exercised faith in Christ prior to his command. Um, Though sometimes present, it was not always a condition or prerequisite for uh, Christ to um, or to healing, as in the instance that uh, raising Lazarus from the dead uh, can attest in eleven or in John eleven forty four. Uh, desire became faith only when he uh, responded and was able to make the Lord's command, uh, he was the object of this miraculous power. So uh, the man's uh, prior faith or belief in Christ was not, you know, so to speak, a prerequisite for Christ to perform this miracle. And we all know, you know, he didn't require, you know, in these miracles for someone to necessarily believe at that time. <laughs> But he did have enough faith and belief that what? He tried it. He got up, didn't he? He got up and uh, he was cured. 
So, uh, so he performed this miracle, and it was a threefold command. In other words, there's three parts to what Christ told him. And this is nothing new, is it? Uh, he said, arise, take up your bed, and walk. So he did those three things in that order. You know, uh, so he had the faith to do that and, and was cured. Okay, now this is where all the trouble starts. <clears throat> now it was on the Sabbath. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Uh, perhaps this is noted to indicate the day on which this uh, miracle of healing occurred. Uh, this too explains why the Jews registered such intense opposition to Jesus for the act. The Sabbath was the seventh day of uh, seventh day of the week or Saturday, uh, the Jewish day of worship. Evidently, the Lord deliberately healed the man on this day so that, among other things, he might raise the question whether the action was proper on that day or not. So, do you think, you know, that was a good idea? I mean, he, he's... Not only did the uh, miracle occur which the Jews obviously paid no attention to. There, there's nothing said. They what? I mean, 38 years this man had not been able to walk, and he's walking just by the words that Christ said. That doesn't faze them. To me, I, I mean, that's somewhat amazing to me that it didn't even just shock them and, you know, believe. But then again... Let's, let's put that in today's context. I personally think that the Bible is straightforward. You know, it says this, you should do it. Yet there's people out there that say, no, no. Or don't believe what the Bible says or that, you know, there's even a God in existence. I guess that's the same thing here, you know. And they had it right there in front of them. It didn't faze them. All they were worried about or thought about was uh, they broke the law. It was the Sabbath day and you couldn't do anything. It was the day of rest and he broke that law. We're going after him. That's all they thought about. So, uh, uh, verse 10. So, <clears throat> So the Jews said unto him that was cured, the man, uh, the crippled man, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for thee to take up thy bed. Really? He had not been able to walk in 38 years and that's what the first thing they said to him. You're breaking the law. Do you really think he was worried about that? But what, somebody tell me what the penalty was for breaking the law on Sabbath, for doing work. Death. Death. So I guess, you know, he went 38 years being uh, <clears throat> crippled. He gets cured. Now he's looking at death, you know. So uh, that had to have been, you know, somewhat of a shocker to him, I guess. Uh, but 
the law of Moses forbade work on the Sabbath day, and the actual edict, if you will, in Exodus 31, verse 15, it reads, uh, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Jehovah. Whosoever doeth any work on the Sabbath, he shall surely be put to death. On the return from the uh, Babylonian exile, Nehemiah prohibited the carrying of any commercial burdens, or in other words, any type of business. There would be no business dealings uh, on the Sabbath. And the the Pharisees concluded uh, from this that nothing was to be picked up on the Sabbath day. Uh, So if you want to look at this, I'll read it real quick. Let's turn over to Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Starting in verse 15. And this is Nehemiah uh, speaking or writing. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not your God, or did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem... As it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath, then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to to the greatness of your mercy. So obviously they had kind of got slack, if you will, in observing the, the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah here is kind of trying to restore that, um, that order, that, you know, of what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath, of it being a day of rest and, and no work. So... Um, <clears throat> The so continuing on with the the, the Sabbath day uh, in Genesis, God ceases from His uh, 
cycle of creation or this, you know, uh, creating the world and provides us with a divine example of rest or cessation of work. You know, we don't work. We just do nothing. Um, if he did not work, though, we would ourselves, we would work... Um, if he did not, we would work ourselves to death. I don't know about that. I may be going a little too far, but uh, in the Pentateuch, or the, the first five books of the Bible, the, the Old Testament, he describes how the day is to be used and not used. For example, in Exodus thirteen seventeen, Exodus thirty four twenty four, or thirty four twenty one, and then many uh, festivals were celebrated to praise God's mercy and greatness, and they culminated on the day of the Sabbath. Uh, With the construction of the temple and later on the establishment of synagogues in different cities, the Sabbath became associated with activities at the temple or the synagogues, you know, or, you know, a place of meeting. And eventually the Sabbath came to mean no work, and meeting at the temple or synagogue for prayer and teaching and other forms of worship. So it's this kind of evolved. This whole Sabbath thing, you know, what God set in motion when he rested on the Sabbath day, uh, as far as just a day of rest, it has now evolved into uh, kind of a day of worship. Not necessarily just a day of rest, but a day of worship. So uh, I guess we'll pick up there with uh, talking about the Sabbath day next week and, and continue on with uh, verse 10.